Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now that 2020 is behind you, it's time to grow. Organizations thriving in the face of uncertainty and who will emerge better are doing so by adapting quickly, pivoting to donor-centric fundraising, and building a bridge to connect supporters to their story. How can your nonprofit become nimble, innovative, and responsive like that? Learn how at the Responsive Nonprofit Summit. Join us April 14th and 15th, 2021 for the Responsive Nonprofit Summit, a free two-day virtual learning experience for forward-thinking nonprofit fundraisers and leaders like yourselves, hosted by Virtuous. This is not your typical virtual event. You'll be front row with world-class nonprofit and thought leaders, participate in hands-on, discussion-driven workshops during breakout sessions, and build lasting connections with like-minded peers. From the latest in fundraising and marketing to in-the-trenches case studies, Get the insights and connections you need to grow in 2021 and beyond. Register today to save your free seat at virtuous.org forward slash Rainmaker. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show today. I am thrilled to be here with Abby Maxman, president and CEO of Oxfam America, uh, where she leads the organization's global fight against poverty and injustice. And prior to becoming president and CEO of Oxfam America, Abby spent more than two decades with care, uh, as the county uh, country director in both Ethiopia and Haiti, as vice president of international programs and operations at CARE USA, and as deputy secretary general at CARE International, as well as holding several different leadership positions within the U.S. government. Abby, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be with you. Really appreciate you joining me. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you about your leadership journey and experience. But before we get into that, uh, I would love if you take a few more minutes to um, share with our audience a little bit more about yourself and the background that uh, maybe isn't in your, your traditional bio. So share with us a little bit more about the work of Oxfam and what you're doing on the ground across the globe right now. Well, great. Uh, Oxfam, for those who don't know Oxfam, is a global organization uh, whose mission is to fight the injustice of poverty. And we are very specific about the injustice piece because we believe that poverty is a result of human action and inaction. And so if we look at the issues of inequality and injustice that are underlying the issues of poverty, it is fundamental we are tackling those together. And we work in 90 countries, more than 90 countries around the world. Uh, We have been around as an Oxfam family for more than 75 years and in the US for more than 50. And uh, we take a multidisciplinary approach to looking at the underlying causes of what is keeping people trapped in poverty. And as we've seen, uh, and I think COVID has really been a great revealer of, is the deep inequalities and inequities Uh, have been exposed to the world. And as Oxfam, we have been talking about that for a long time. And uh, now is the time for bold and confident action to change some of the global and national policies that really could make a, a massive transformational difference in kind of restoring and renewing uh, the baseline where of, of the situations people live in around the world and in the U.S. It seems like you're right. I mean, with what COVID has sort of, you know, the the window that it's opened up for at least domestically with with, you know, Americans uh, being able to see and, and feel, I think, at a different level what it means to to be under threat is only magnified when you when you consider the global implications. I, I think that that's a really great point. Um, tell us a little bit more about your own background and and you know, I'd I'd love to to hear kind of the path that you took 
uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that has brought you to the point where you're leading Oxfam America? So when I look back, you know, there's when I look back, there looks like there's more of a thread or an intentionality in the journey than I think when when one's young and first starting out, <laughs> you know, you don't know what's before you. Um, but there are some images that I think are really seared into my consciousness that uh, led me into my life's work. And uh, I remember some moments of learning about the Ethiopian famine in 1984. Um, and, you know, not even understanding, but recognizing like, how, how, how is this possible? And other moments, apartheid in South Africa, and when HIV and AIDS were just emerging um, in the late 80s and, and 90s. And for me, that was shaping, those were formative times in, in my own life. And uh, I my, the ideals of what I thought was possible in the world. You know, when I look back that far <laughs> to today, working for an organization like Oxfam, you know, that that belief that we have the ability to do so much, you know, just recently, you know, we have these, you know, machines on Mars, you know, look what's happening. And we can solve global poverty. This doesn't need to happen. So when I look back at, you know, what sparked my career of, you know, the uh, joining, I started out as a Peace Corps volunteer after I studied political science and history and ended up working in Lesotho in one of the frontline states in the anti-apartheid movement uh, as a community development worker and seeing the manifestations and social injustice of, part of apartheid um, and what it meant to everybody in the region and people dying of AIDS um, you know, in scores around me, um, young people, uh, minors from South Africa returning to their homes and their villages in Lesotho. And so those were all kind of deeply part of my own journey, my own learning and my own quest. And I also thinking kind of back then, you know, 30 year time span to today, where we look at some of the issues of our time and the racial reckoning in the United States. And I remember as a young white woman in Lesotho having white South Africans say to me, hey, what are you doing here? What about what's happening in your own country? And I think I had brought the ideals of being a U.S., you know, of, of America. And I kind of got it, but I didn't get it in a way that I should have. Um, and so I look at these kind of key moments in my life now retrospectively. You know, I went on to work in post-genocide Rwanda in really the first commercial flight that was after the genocide in, wow. in Rwanda um, and spent three years there looking at the rebuilding of a country and then studying and understanding where there were socio-political dimensions of US action and inaction and others um, that was also very formative to me and, and my work. And so as I've took the journey to the things you described about my, you know, my uh, kind of CV, I guess, of the roles I've had, there was this kind of building and intention, I think, of, um, without realizing it, of where my commitment to make, be hopefully contributed positively to social change was part of my journey. And to care so deeply about these issues personally and professionally. And I wasn't looking to the next role, but being very present in where I was. And I think that was part of what led me to other doors and new opportunities and eventually my role leading Oxfam America. That's great. So I, I want to key in on something you said early in your response there. 
you said the phrase, we can solve global poverty. Now that's different than what I hear from a lot of leaders of global NGOs that are working in poverty alleviation. There, there's a hope and a determination in that statement that I don't hear from a lot of others. Talk to me a little bit about the, your point of view around that. Let's take some of the things that we've been measuring as a community, uh, the sustainable development goals. There was progress happening up pre-COVID. Now we've seen a huge backsliding. I remember at month nine, and I'm, I won't get my statistics right because they're changing all the time, but I remember you know, saying some and having you know, my incredible teams and researchers always <laughs> equipping me with, with the points and messages uh, you know, and making sure my data is solid that we lost you know, um, year, 25 years of progress in wow. nine months on, against certain indicators at, at certain moments. Um, but we know it is possible. We know issues, you know, if you look at some hunger, global hunger, there had been years of progress and then the slippage and now, you know, increased significant risk, um, certainly public health. We know that, uh, you know, all sorts of um, immunization and, you know, fighting malaria, TB, et cetera, HIV, We've made real progress. We see when there is action, um, when companies, when the private sector is taking action to, um, you know, make give access to, you know, or to, you know, they're looking at the issues of intellectual property and licensing and sublicensing and issues like HIV. And if we apply that to today, to COVID and the, you know, a people's vaccine, you see the learnings of where we've been able to fight and make real measurable progress. But we also see when there's backsliding and um, you know, there's global policies, there's political will, collective action, and again, inaction that has a huge impact on people's lives. And it's usually the people who have no voice and choice in the decisions that are being made about issues that affect them. Um, and that's the same that's true in conflict settings. If we take Yemen, um, the world's largest humanitarian crisis, uh, sadly, for the past six years in a world that's certainly facing multiple crises, we knew when the U.S. government could make a decision to suspend arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, that has massive implications immediately on millions of Yemenis. And we're seeing right now the Biden administration coming out boldly on those issues that can have huge, you know, tipping point, you know, extreme like pendulum swing implications on people's lives and livelihoods. Yeah. Thank, thank you for going deeper on that. I appreciate that. I, I want to talk about values now, you know, as, as you think about your, your own leadership work and, and the organization that you lead uh, on a daily basis, what are the values that are most important to you? Um, I have my own personal list and, you know, uh, they mean a lot to me personally and professionally. I'd say integrity, uh, respect, commitment. I have one that's sort of a dual one. It's service and servant leadership um, and accountability. Those are ones that that are critically important to me. Uh, I hope they overlap with our organization's values as well. <laughs> So uh, I think those all make really good sense as, as critical values, particularly for, for a leader. Um, and I think importantly in our, in our current climate, 
talk to me a little bit about how you build and nurture a culture at Oxfam that um, that encapsulates those values and maybe the other values that that you organizationally hold. Mm. Well, yeah, I I become I'm extremely I think I obsessively interested in organizational behavior and culture, um, and. You know, I think as a sector and certainly at Oxfam, I know we attract people who are deeply mission-driven, values-driven people. Like the righteousness of how much people care about our issues, you know, is deep and it's just, it's precious. Uh, and it's it's a constant work in progress too, because with that kind of uh, an organization that's full of activists and passionate, committed professionals, um, we're not a single issue organization. We look at the systems. We are a systems or, you know, looking at when you look at inequality, these are systemic issues. And, um, you know, sometimes it can be can feel really Sisyphean at times of building an organizational culture where we talk about our feminist principles and where we're not, you know, it's hard. It's like the art, not the science sometimes. Of, if something goes wrong and you and I had a, you know, a hard debate or a tough conversation, yet there's power relations. If I'm the president and CEO and I'm, you know, debating on an issue, it can make someone feel, you know, that I'm not respecting them or listening and caring about them. And so how we show up and do that with each other is a constant work in progress. So how we're working on this as an organization, you know, there is not a blueprint or a quick fix in my view. You know, it is the marathon. It is how are we modeling behaviors consistent with what we say and all that we do? How are we showing up, being responsive, being present, having the hard conversations, but with kindness and compassion and integrity? Because we don't want to not push ourselves and not be held accountable and be challenged. So it really is an ongoing journey, I'd say. And how do I create the safe space for people to learn, to fail? to celebrate when we get things right. Uh, that's that's something we're not particularly good at, I think, at times, because, you know, the work's never done. Mm -hmm. We can have a win, a policy win and celebrate it. It's like, OK, I got five minutes and I'm getting back at it because now we've just opened huge new doors of things we have to to be fighting for. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, follow up to that, if you will. Talk to me about how um, how your culture development may have changed in the last twelve months. I, I you know not necessarily related to COVID. I'm, I'm more curious with the racial reckoning that's happened across the country since the the George Floyd incident. How has that changed how you maybe previously would have approached culture development in the organization, or, or has it at all? Oh wow, I think it really has. Um, we had already you know, recognize, I think there's been moments over years before I even, before I joined Oxfam, <clears throat> and even since I joined Oxfam, Charlottesville was a moment, um, you know, and, and it, there's so many, you know, we can list so many that we should have been galvanized by as a world, as a community, as in, in the United States. But absolutely, we had already um, noted, we, we launched our 10-year strategy on April 1st in 2020. So literally just as we were like trying to work from home and change our, our way of working. And we had been on a, when we talk about 
feminist principles at Oxfam, and we had done a gender action learning process for about two years prior to launching our strategy. And we knew that, you know, we needed to look at racial justice as well as gender justice and social justice and economic justice and climate justice as these intersectional issues. Um, but we knew that that was going to be part of our journey. I think what happened certainly in the past summer, uh, last summer, was the need to, you know, the urgency of the moment and reckoning. It wasn't an intellectual conversation to talk about is what does it mean to be an anti-racist organization? I don't, we have to learn as we go. We need accompaniment. We need support to integrate you know, being an anti-racist journey into our gender justice journey, into our diversity, equity, and inclusion work that had already been ongoing. And how do we not just lump them all together and disaggregate them enough, but not it feel like we're just loading a bunch of initiatives onto people? Um, and certainly let's not do rote checkbox stuff. And so we're trying to do the deep work. Um, in, in COVID and in the sector in general, I think there's certainly a, a workload issue, um, how sure. to work remote, um, keep people motivated, feeling connected. Um, it's a lot. Uh, certainly I try to communicate, communicate and communicate and it's never enough in the multiple mediums that we might have. And just trying to show up and focus on teamwork with compassion and kindness and be responsive and reliable and caring as a leader. Um, that notion of being kind of kind hearted and tough minded to keep our work going, but recognizing people have so much going on. Uh, and when we're talking about one thing, it doesn't mean we're ignoring our commitments to really being, you know, learning on anti racism and what does that mean, but also our absorption, absorptive capacity as people, as professionals, and as an organization, we're kind of balancing all that as we go. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. It brings me to my next question. I'm thinking about change management, because you've, you've talked a lot about major initiatives. You talked about your, your 10-year uh, strategic uh, plan and these different things. And, and with what you've just described, it, you know, it's got me curious, how, how does someone like yourself keep a team focused, motivated, and aligned uh, when you're undertaking major changes like that, particularly in a situation where people might be, you know, you, you've got a distributed workforce working from home rather than in the office. You're contending with, you know, staff who might be working globally and have uh, fewer resources than they did a year ago because of everything that's going on. How do you keep it all together? <laughs> Uh, I say this, uh, I respond with, you know, I, when I say, I say it with like profound humility <laughs> because uh, I can say all the right words and feel like I'm doing it. And that notion of, you know, how can we all acknowledge we're all doing enough what we can, you know, we, I am enough, but it's never enough. And so how am I connecting and creating spaces to connect and engage? Um, help us focus on common cause and mission, how we help prioritize. I feel guilty as charged that that is a constant refrain of we need to prioritize. And as a leader, I need to show up and help our team do that. Uh, and yet I don't feel like I've been successful as I'd like to be in that. But focus on team, uh, reminding us all to 
seek first to understand rather than be understood, to understand our our teams, our partners, our allies of what what they're going through um, every day. You just heard my kids come, two of mine come home from school. You, you um, might hear my three-year-old scream in a minute. Who knows? <laughs> I was going to say, um, you know, I feel fortunate they're coming home from school. You know, they got to go to school today. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, listen, learn, connect, understand. Um, sometimes I have to go into my senior team meetings and remind us all to just let's, if we don't understand, you know, interrogate. Let's mm. remember to bring, you know, oh gosh, I'm really frustrated and I have so much to do. And, you know, how do we help each other through it? And it just requires that um, being human and our common humanity and we're all doing our best and how do we reach across to help each other? Um, because it's really hard and it's really hard as a social justice poverty fighting organization where our people can be really hard on ourselves that you know what our colleagues in South Sudan are struggling with every mm. day, what our yeah. colleagues in Yemen, and just knowing, oh gosh, you know, I have a safe, I have a roof over my head. I'm not worried about my, you know, where I, I can work from home, even though I'm not in right. the queue for a, a vaccine. And it's it's a miracle that there's a vaccine, and we're fighting for a people's vaccine that is free and fair and distributed to everybody, um, and we're trying to keep our families safe. Mm. Uh, so. I, it's sort of a, how do I, how do I do it? I think it's just keeping it at it, taking the long view and, and the one day at a time view at the same time. <laughs> so I, I want to uh, ask a follow-up. You, you talked about prioritization and needing to prioritize. You know, I, I suspect, at least I know in, in my company, I find myself as the leader reprioritizing every day. And there's a certain level of wherewithal I feel like I can, like I bring to the table primarily probably because a lot of the prioritization that I get to do, um, someone else unfortunately has to you know, execute on, right? And, and I find myself challenged to, to do that because we have to do it to move the organization forward and to take care of our, our partners and our, our you know, clients. But at the same time, I know that it causes additional stress uh, on, on the team. Have you found any magic bullets on on <laughs> how, how to how to deal with that and how to help people not feel like a ping pong ball in the middle when you as the leader are reprioritizing the organizational uh, direction on an ongoing basis? Well, definitely have not found silver bullet, magic wand, or <laughs> or panacea. I wish, but I think there are some things about consistency, compassion, reliability being there. Um, you know, I feel like over the past year, I've relearned lessons that I've learned in different, you know, leading through crisis, leading through uh, just leading, um, you know, listening, never hesitating to ask for help, reminding my staff, my teams of that. I think people feel that sense of responsibility, not wanting to burden me, you know, they're, oh, you have so much going on. I'm going to go and, and get it done. And, yep. You know, and how do we give people the room, you know, to to slow down or to we don't aspire to for good enough. We we aspire for much more than that, but it's okay. You know, it, it is okay. And just how do we stay connected and and um you know, I, I think I'm a big believer. You know, we talk at Oxfam about feminist principles, feminist leadership. I have often thought it's more like 21st century leadership of <laughs> just being caring and compassionate and, right. 
you know, it's really hard to pe read each other through Zoom. I know I'm a, I'm a people person. I have like to think my, some of my emotional intelligence comes from reading people. And then we're doing it through a screen. Right. And, you know, it's like, what is, what's your face saying? What's my face saying? Oh my gosh, I don't know. Um, so how do we work hard to, you know, reduce it, misunderstandings for people to speak up? I had someone, a senior person say to me saying, you know, I think, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to do it all. And I'm like, well, that's great. You know, having that conversation before we get to great breaking point. And I know this is someone who is an incredible professional and has so much going on. And us creating the space to say that, and that being okay. Okay, now we have to we have to problem solve towards it, but because that's when they're going to feel that I've really heard them. For sure. Um, and uh, so thinking it through, but not by myself. You know, kind of pushing back and others. How can we find an alternative to this? And what happens if we slow that down? And why don't we just show up at that meeting on? the 16th and um, you know just use it as a where we where are we in our strategy you know in our planning for the next year but it's not fully cooked because we do need to create these offline spaces to to work through them talk to me about you know in the last 12 months or so what have you learned about yourself uh, in in dealing with covid and all the other things that have gone on gosh um, certainly the need, you know, maybe it's these relearnings, um, figure out ways to communicate, communicate, communicate in as many ways as possible to stay connected. I I'm just believe that we can break down miscommunications and misunderstandings by staying connected. We've learned a lot about being, you know, working more interactively on Zoom. I know we're not alone, um, but when I think about, you know, remember it well, March 12th, you know, we're at 50, week 51 and I had a board meeting and we had already gone to Zoom because people weren't crossing the country. And um, we were very proud of ourselves that we had these little breakout rooms and we did a good job. You know, we were <laughs> like, oh, look at us. Um, and so getting better at technology, of course, um, has been things we've learned as an organization and for myself. But, you know, I've just had to dig deep um, in terms of looking at my own leadership style, efficacy. Um, we have a whole new cohort of staff and leaders working together, many of whom have never met mm. any of their colleagues in person or been in our buildings or space wow. together. You know, I, um, one of my vice presidents, I met him on that day on March 12th and uh, in a final <laughs> interview, I, I was lucky. I got to meet him. We were distant. Um, so we all need to lean towards one another and dig deep to understand each other with purpose and intent and awareness and presence and humility um, of how we work in this new way. You know, I, I don't know the numbers, but I'm sure I remember reading a somebody else in a newsletter, a foundation president saying, you know, one fifth of our workforce has never met each other. And I was like, <laughs> huh. you know, it's probably the same, you know, I don't know my numbers. Um, so there's been a lot of learning and self-reflection of how one shows up as a leader and helps each other get to know, get, help our teams, you know, get to know each other and work collaboratively purely in virtual spaces. And I think you already touched on it, but another big learning over the year 
you know, certainly George Floyd's murder was this huge moment of reckoning that really was laid bare during COVID and that the urgency and importance of breaking down white supremacy, my own role in that, my own need to, you know, self-educate and learn and dig deeper and challenge my own assumptions has been um, huge for me personally and professionally, even as someone who thought I might be working hard in that area, but uh, clearly have not used my power and privilege um, to greatest effect yet. Thank you. Uh, the, the next thing I want to talk about is a little bit of a pivot away from sort of the cultural things. And I'm, I'm curious to know how, how you are um, leveraging some of the advances in data and emerging technologies to more effectively deliver program globally. Um, and whether or not you're doing anything like that to also enhance your uh, engagement with uh, your charitable supporters. Well, yes, and I know that there's people far smarter than me and my team's doing that um, in terms of drawing on. So, so my role in it, I feel like I'm drawing on the expertise of and being intentional about bringing in data-driven leaders. Um, Great. We have a, a an. ICT for the uh, information communication technology for development team that is doing incredible work that I wish I could go see and learn more about. And, um, you know, I, how we use technology, you know, in refugee camps and in, in lots of aspects of our work, how do we use it better for um, impact monitoring or just even outcome monitoring? And we are part of a very dispersed global organization with 20 affiliates across the Confederation, looking at how I think we have a lot more to do and we can learn from our peers and best practice and how we're harnessing, um, you know, our impacts and, you know, using, using data and tools and technology um, better. Uh, I think we don't think we're where we want to be yet, though we are investing in our digital platforms and our you know, ICT for development and uh, systems transformation. Uh, we're also investing more, if, when I think about our supporter engagement, um, in some roles we haven't had, audience, an audience insight role to inform how we are connecting with our public and supporter engagement. And I don't say that, you know, purely from a fundraising perspective. I think the past year has galvanized people's activism and our own role um, and commitment which was part of our founding as Oxfam in America, to really inform and educate and connect with our supporters to take action. And that's been part of what we try to do in the US anyway. And we're trying to deepen that now, both through the online engagement and how do we use um, our tools to, to influence members of Congress, to influence the legislative agenda, to influence policymakers. And just recently, last week, uh, we had our Sisters on the Planet, which is this incredible group of powerful women who've been with us for, for 10 years, who uh, we do um, big lobby days on the Hill around International Women's Day. And we did that last week to, and we had uh, like dozens, I, I think over 60 meetings with members of Congress wow. and the Senate with our, with our powerful sisters around the, the, the planet, influencing um, what we believe we want to see happen on, um, you know, upcoming, you know, the stimulus bill and foreign policy and foreign aid. And um, 
so we're using data, bringing it to those spaces to influence organize, you know, certainly help our supporters connect and engage and use their power to influence uh, policymakers for real change at a moment in time where I think we have a huge opportunity to do so. Would agree. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Uh, so you talked when we first started chatting this afternoon. You, you shared a little bit about some of the countries that you've uh, worked in and some of the the geopolitical hot zones and 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 issues that had um, that have brought you to those work, uh, locations. I'm curious to know in all of that experience that you've had, what's the biggest crisis that you faced, and and what did you learn about yourself in the process? Well, I, I, I two, I'll have to call them trials by fire come to mind because they're crisis when you're new in a role. You know, you, I think we all know that we have to manage and lead through crisis and complexity as leaders. And so there's two moments. One is my current role that I'll talk about second. And one is um, in Haiti uh, when I was country director in 2004. Um, it was about six weeks into my role, and I had a staff of about a thousand and a big one of the largest programs for certainly care who I was working for at the time. Um, and there were just this confluence of factors. I was in my late 30s. I was in the midst of cancer treatment. I had a small child and I was uh, a new country director. And Haiti experienced the largest humanitarian crisis at the, that it had had in 40 years at the time. A tropical storm that settled over the town of Gonaive, killed 3,000 people, uh, displaced 300,000. And it was a time it was sort of the epicenter of one of the care who I was working for at the time, it was kind of the, we were the largest actor in that space. So I was wow. charged to lead a major humanitarian response in this kind of incredible confluence of events. And I didn't really know my team yet, you know, six weeks in, you don't know who's who. Um, and it was, it was just a very difficult situation. The UN peacekeepers, a lot of complexity there. Um, it was just a major challenge, even though I had a lot of humanitarian and crisis management experience from some of the other places I've worked. So that is one of those trials by fire of how does one lead from the front? I like to think of myself as a ser servant leader, but you need to just do it. You need to di dive in, take action, be directive. Uh, I had to go nose to nose and heated like to call it debate, but arguments with UN peacekeeper, a general in the United Nations, you know, at the time. And there's gender dynamics. You know, I was still relatively, you know, younger as a woman. Um, in a and and so that a lot of learning. And for me, that was one of those moments where I had to, again, don't hesitate to ask for help. I remind my teams of that. You know, you don't have to shoulder it by yourself, but there are times to be directive and out front, but reach out to the network, to the community, uh, communicate a lot, You know, let people know what's going on, call it how you see it, um, so that I can challenge my own assumptions of what I think I'm understanding. And so I fast forward to my role, my time at Oxfam, um, where I joined Oxfam in mid 2017. And uh, many people may be aware of uh, the sexual misconduct scandal uh, that was uh, reported and really hit the media in February of 2018 about Oxfam um, and, you know, against the backdrop of Me Too. And it was an incident from 2011, but it made global head headlines. Sure. And it was really an existential crisis for the organization. 
And where I had to step in, you know, not weeks into, but months into my tenure leading Oxfam America and being part of a global confederation uh, where I had to bring my, my clarity of purpose, my decades of experience and commitment to preventing sexual exploitation and abuse and looking at the issues of power and gender-based violence and my own experience as a humanitarian and development practitioner and lead from the front and be clear about you know, what we did do, be truthful about our failings, uh, where we need to improve, help people understand that it's long, gritty work that needs to be done mm -hmm. to rebuild trust and confidence day in and day out. And the consistency one needs to do to show up and lead through that. It's a long view. You're not going to get quick wins or easy way outs. And, and that's okay. And uh, helping you know, stay the course and provide that leadership and confidence to your staff who can feel, you know, really betrayed or like we have a scarlet letter on our back. Um, uh, and how do we take the opportunity to share our learnings and just do the long, the long work that's needed to rebuild trust and um, confidence? Those are fantastic examples. Thank you so much. I have one uh, final question before I let you go for the afternoon. And that is, you know, Obviously, you're a busy leader. You're, you're leading a, a large organization doing work across, uh, I think you said 90 countries. Um, it's gotta be stressful. Um, and and it, it, you know, you've gotta have uh, uh, just people competing for time and, and your energy every time you turn around. I'm curious to know what you do to create the time and space to, to rest and recharge personally so that you can continue to show up and lead well. Mm. Yeah, that's a life a lifelong learning process. That's a <laughs> always a construction site. But I, as you said, time and space; those are the commodity commodities. I'd say that are in shortest supply for all of us. You know, wherever we are. Um, you know, I, I have three children, two dogs, a husband of nearly thirty years, three octogenarians in my life who I care deeply about. You know, very who I need to try to be there for. And, and I thank my incredible spouse and life partner, you know, have to create the time to talk and listen and be present. Um, and, you know, the very basics of self-care. So in COVID, I've become an obsessive walker. You know, I used to be a runner. I have my Fitbit and I am, you know, OCD about, I got to get my steps. Because um, I feel, you know, the things you can control, but it's also, you know, exercise, movement. It's so easy to get trapped into Zoom, you know, 10 hours a day and still create the space to move and feel healthy and to you know, really feel, be present with my children. We try to make sure we have dinner together. You know, there's these sacred spaces of meals and, you know, planning our meals and how are we going to nourish our family and ourselves and find the balance and restoration time. You know, I do carve it out. I'm imperfect about it, but I also am kind of obsessive about it too. There's some things that I just never give up on and, you know, to read and sleep and you know, I think there's some things that COVID has enabled us who used to travel a lot. You know, I do read more, exercise more, eat better, and I'm more present with my family. And those are things I want to keep and figure out how we hold on to. Yeah, I've uh, I've found the exact same thing, you know, not being on a plane six days a week, uh, 
gives you a lot more flexibility for all for all the negatives of of the COVID situation. It, it is the silver lining that, you know, it's it's been an opportunity to make some reconnections at home and and do some things that might keep us a little healthier over time. So I definitely resonate with that. Abby, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate you sharing your your leadership journey and wisdom and experience with us. If somebody who's listening wants to connect with Oxfam, what's the best way for people to, to get to know you all? Oh, great. Well, please visit our website, www.oxfamamerica.org. There's ways to take action, obviously give. Um, there's constant updating on how to uh, reach out to members of Congress on policy issues. So just uh, website seems to be the, the place to come, but Instagram, Facebook, you can find us in all those places and Twitter, of course. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Likewise. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.